不要亏钱，我们刚才吃的那个也不好喝啊！注意了。Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Shireen Hamza, and I'm Nir Shafir. And today we'll be speaking with John Chen. John is a PhD candidate in Columbia University's History Department. He's currently finishing a dissertation on Islamic modernism in China, Chinese Muslim elites, Guomindang. Nation building and the limits of the global ummah from 1900 to 1960. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. It's good to be here. Today, we're going to focus our conversation on some of the material that you've already published just last year. An article called "Just Like Old Friends: The Significance of Southeast Asia to Modern Chinese Islam." But before we get into the meat of the article, the sort of modern connections between Muslims in China and in Southeast Asia, could you give us a bit of an overview of the history of Islam in China itself? Um, absolutely, yeah. So the first thing most people usually ask is,、uh, you know, oh, Islam in China—that's the Uyghurs, right? So there are two, actually, there are several, but there are two main groups. Uh, of Muslims in what's today the country of China. One is the Uyghurs, and they live primarily in the northwest, in the you know in the area called Xinjiang, traditionally known as、uh, as Eastern Turkestan. But that area was only conquered、uh, in the 18th century by the last、uh, Chinese imperial dynasty. So the other group,、uh, which is the one that I study.、Uh, More more directly is the Chinese Muslims、uh, who call themselves the Hui,、uh, and they have been in China for much much longer, for almost as long as Islam has existed. And、uh, they are less geographically concentrated; they're found in every city and province,、um, and、uh, they have, you know, a larger portion of the population in the northwest, but but really they're everywhere. Listeners who are interested in a specific chapter of the of the history of Islam in China can also check out our interview with Kelly Hammond on this topic. So to go back to the geographically spread out people called the Hui, what are the connections in throughout this very long history? I'm guessing nearly 1,300 or right, about, about thereabouts. Years of history.、Um, what what were their sort of connections historically with Southeast Asia? Right.、Um, so first of all, just generally, the the geographic distribution comes from the fact that there were several waves chronologically of Chinese Muslims,、um, or sorry, of Muslims、uh, coming to China. And this is where the sort of land versus sea、uh, dynamic、um, that I'm interested in. Comes in the first major set of Muslims to come to China and, and be active there were merchants, Arab and Persian merchants,、uh, coming starting you know eighth century, and、uh, they settled primarily in southeastern China.、Uh, several centuries pass、um, when you get to the Mongol era. This is like the second phase. This is、um, a time when the Mongol administration is actually privileging. Uh, Muslims over Han Chinese、uh, mm. in terms of administrative posts, and you know this is only a decade after they've conquered Baghdad, so、mm -hmm. they are bringing Arab and Persian soldiers and administrators and scientists and all kinds of、uh, people with with expertise、uh, over to Beijing to help them rule.、Uh, whole provinces、uh, were the province of Yunnan, for instance, was conquered、mm -hmm. by a Muslim general sent by the Mongols. So I mean, the Mongol period is a pretty unique time, one with a lot of consequences for. Um, for later periods, then really the key transition point that most scholars point to in history of Islam in China is the Mongol to the Ming transition,、uh, 
Um, so this is a time when you're moving from a non-Han dynasty uh, to a Han, you know, centered dynasty. And when about would that be? So that is um, 1368 uh, is when the, the dynasties switch. So for a time, for the first, you know, few decades of the Ming, uh, the new dynasty, you have some of the Mongol like openness persisting. Right. And the, the quintessential example of this that everyone points to is the, the Zhenghe missions. Um, this Muslim admiral uh, who was sent by the Ming to um, conduct diplomacy and trade with um, countries around the Indian Ocean. He was a 15th century. That's early person. 15th century. Okay. Yeah. OK. Um, but basically, I mean, you have a few decades of that, you know, uh, very robust exchange. But just as suddenly they cut it off, the Ming decided to cut it off. Um, mm in the 1430s. And by robust exchange, you're talking about exchange between Southeast Asia and Muslims in China, or is it? Right. So he visits, um, you know, present day Malaysia Mm -hmm. and uh, Indonesia and the Indian coast, Sri Lanka, all the way over to um, Arabia. He doesn't go to Mecca himself, but some of his um, crew go there and they provide a accurate description of of the Kaaba. You know, we're pretty sure that this actually happened. Mm -hmm. After him, you really see uh, a more insular, uh, what's regarded as more insular Ming policy, where they're really encouraging uh, Muslims in China to assimilate and to adopt Chinese names and you know, to stop having separate Muslim quarters of the cities. And um, you know, they, they promote intermarriage. They promote Chinese architectural styles for the construction of mosques. Hmm. Uh, that sort of thing. Uh, Zwiebendor uh, at uh, NYU in particular has written um, about this transition. Then once this moment of like insularity kind of prevails, you have a couple of important dynamics that uh, um, are coming into play for the subsequent several hundred years. Um, so one is the translation of Islamic thought into Chinese uh, and the um, discursive, you know, balancing or synthesis of um, or basically explaining of, of Islam in Confucian terms, uh, which leads to a canon, uh, again, something that Zvi uh, has written on called the Han Kitab, the Chinese Muslim canon. And then the second important set of developments is in the 19th century when the Qing is starting to become much weaker uh, and you're having Muslim rebellions uh, across the frontiers, in the north, especially the Northwest. So my question, uh, and you know, um, particularly in the article, was given that that moment of, of turning inward uh, has been looked at as, as so formative for, you know, mu- quote-unquote Muslims in China becoming Chinese Muslims, mm-hmm. which is, you know, appears to be the case. If that's the case, what was the legacy of the, you know, maritime exchange before that, which is fully half of the time that Islam has been in China? You know, what was, did that continue to resonate with Muslims uh, in China uh, in later centuries. Hmm, That's a really fascinating question. Are there sources of Chinese history that can tell us more about the kind of assimilation or adaptation or effect on broader Chinese culture and history that this history of exchange could have had? Absolutely. And um, it goes back uh, actually really far. Already in the ninth uh, or early 10th century, you have, uh, for example, a Persian scholar in present-day Sichuan who... um, is writing a catalog of Materia Medica, and um, his family has moved to Sichuan from Persia in the last century or so. He's writing this in Chinese, and this uh, text, his you know his information is based on his pharmaceutical business, 
um, that's tied into both uh, land and sea networks. Uh, the book is called Haiyao Bencao, which is um, uh, basically a, the catalog of, of maritime materia medica. So he's especially plugged into the sea network. Um, and this text has influence on later pharmacopoeiae <laughs> in uh, China that uh, are, are regarded as just general, you know, authoritative Chinese uh, pharmacy works. So those those general works, they wouldn't necessarily flag certain items coming in, let's say, nutmeg. Um, would they necessarily emphasize that this is a foreign material or would they just consider it to be part of their medical tradition? Pretty much just the latter. Yeah, and that's something we see... Uh, in the in the pharmacological works, that's uh, something you also see in um, in Muslim pharmacies as we get to um, even early on, but also in later centuries. There's nothing uh, overt uh, uh, necessarily identifying this as a Muslim pharmacy. Um, you just have to uh, kind of know. Um, but uh, but yeah, the truth is, um, and we'll we'll cover uh, the moment when um, Chinese Muslims realize this, uh, I think later. Um, but, uh, basically, yeah, I mean, they, they, they realize that Chinese people generally don't, uh, recognize that, um, these materials came to China first from Muslims, but things like, yeah, things like nutmeg, which is from, um, from Indonesia and things like, um, frankincense and myrrh, which come from, you know, Yemen, Southern Arabia, um, sandalwood, you know, from, from India. Can I just ask a kind of broader question? Is why why is medicine a way of looking at this this question that you're trying to address, which is what is the impact on of the Southeast Asian uh, oceanic trade and the maritime frontier on Muslims in China? Why is medicine a good way of approaching that? Is it just because we have this one text, or is it because it brings together other themes? I mean, it, it's partly to do with with what I've been saying already about the the land versus sea dynamic. I mm -hmm. think a, you know a lot of people are very focused on you know they associate Chinese Islam especially with the Northwest and with mm. kind of land based so sort networks of Silk of, Road of exchange. So Silk Road, yeah. So okay. Silk, yeah. So this is a way to get to get beyond that. Um, but it's also about it's also for reasons having to do with the early. Um, early 20th century. Wait, so what do you mean here? Like, why is this uh, text by a Persian origin physician in Sichuan related to the 20th century? Yeah, so that is for reasons having to do with the early 20th century, when Chinese Muslims are are importing a lot of ideas from the Middle East and, and elsewhere. Uh, and you have to remember, you know, these intervening centuries, uh, which I spoke of, you know, after this inward turning of the Ming, um, they've had much less, generally much less contact with Muslims outside China uh, during those centuries. So mm. um, in the early 20th century, when, you know, especially for reasons of technology, you know, communication and, and transport technology, uh, they have the opportunity to reconnect with Muslims outside China uh, <clears throat> much more directly uh, for the first time in several centuries. One of the things uh, that they are talking about is is just the relationship between Islam and science and, and Islam and medicine. I mean, this is also precisely the time when this is, you know, not just a question for Chinese Muslims, but for Muslims around the world, that this is something being debated, uh, you know, from the Sorbonne to uh, Al-Azhar to everyone else, right? Yeah, abs absolutely. Um, and I think, yeah, one one of the reasons that 
medicine should be looked at more in a Chinese Muslim context is exactly because um, <clears throat> science and Islam is such a big topic for Islamic modernists generally for in the late 19th and early 20th century, as you said, from the debates about um, about science between Renan, you know, the French Orientalist, and um, El Afghani, the you know the early uh, Islamic modernist. So, activist. can you just remind us again what what that little debate is? Right. Sure. So, um, so Renan basically alleged that um, Islam, you know, it has to do with this idea of the golden age, right? So, Islam uh, back in the day during the Abbasid period was uh, very concerned with science and advanced knowledge and um, preserved the knowledge of the Greeks for uh, posterity. Um, but that, that that spirit and that, that impetus had been lost from uh, Islamic thinkers in later centuries. And Afghani responded basically by saying that it had survived and that um, it had you know made this contribution to world knowledge. Uh, and, right. And that debate is being revived also in the 20s um, at the exact time that Chinese Muslims are coming into contact with the Middle East again. So how do they now approach this question of medicine and traditional medicine and supposedly Islamic medicine? Like, how does that, how do those two debates interact? Yeah, so what um, I've been trying to show in this article and also in more recent work is just how much their rediscovery of the history of Islamic medicine um, and its interaction with Chinese medicine and Chinese culture uh, was conditioned by politics in China, uh, you know, was um, basically shaped very contingently by uh, what was happening to their community generally um, when, you know, during the transition from, very fraught transition from empire to nation state uh, in modern China. Muslims just status in China as a, uh, as a minority and a minority that now had to display some loyalty to the nation state. So the things that they said about medicine were just one of many examples of, of um, how they navigated those new dynamics. Can you give us an example of how Muslims in China are doing that or proving their loyalty to the nation state? I spoke, uh, you know, when we were talking about just what's happening with Islam in China generally at this point about uh, how much violence there's been since the late 19th century uh, with Muslims in, you know, in the Western frontiers uh, rising up against the Qing. Um, but some of them choosing uh, instead to side with the state um, against the rebels. Uh, and so this dynamic, there's still a lot of violence between Han and Muslims uh, at the local level in, into the 19-teens and 20s on the frontiers, and then actually also in the cities. And print media, which, you know, as, as in the Middle East, as in a lot of parts of the world, um, is really, you know, uh, exploding in Chinese cities right now, and it becomes really involved in um, this dynamic of communal tension. So uh, basically the example I'm thinking of is a bunch of Han-run Chinese newspapers in the 20s, 30s, uh, publish a lot of really offensive stuff about um, Islam and Muslims. And one of these things uh, basically is what brings Islamic medicine into uh, the, this bigger you know, political problem. So the newspapers... Uh, say, you know, they make these pernicious jokes about, oh, well, you know, since Muslims are descended from pigs, well, of course, you know, it would be 
really unfilial to eat pork because you know that's that's their ancestor um and yeah no i I wish i were kidding about this so yeah so so halal like practices of halal and and pork abstention are one of the first kind of flashpoints uh where this happens so these two prominent imams um a organize some protests in response to this in Mm -hmm. in chinese cities um but b they also take uh to the radio um, to uh, give a more um, kind of conceptual response to the things that are being said about Muslims. So they give this whole series of broadcasts, and this is, you know, this is um, in the early 30s when radio is just coming. I mean, this is a pretty innovative um, and savvy move uh, on their part. So they have a, a series of broadcasts uh, in Chinese where they're talking about, you know, Islam is really is you know is a peaceful religion, uh, and Islam you know Islam's approach to health is also uh, sound for these reasons. And the reasons they cite are multiple reasons. So one is they they cite Western biomedical studies, complete with the Greco Latin terms, mm-hmm. uh, all the different disgusting worms you can you know uh, get from eating pork. Mm-hmm. Alongside that, they quote the parts of the Quran that said you, you know you can't eat blood or dead flesh or, or pork uh, and, and several other you know excerpts. So there's a, there's a um, plural you know mm-hmm. uh, authority dynamic that's happening there. Were they trying to say that the Quranic um, prohibitions, sort of preempted the biomedical proof that pork is harmful. Right. So they're, yeah, so they're saying part of the reason that um, Islamic medicine and appro- a lot Islamic approaches to health are so sound is because, yeah, because they actually prefigure, um, anticipate the findings of, uh, of modern medicine. Hmm. And there's also a dynamic, this will be um, important later. I mean, there's a dynamic of a little bit of, of, of condescension here because they're saying, I mean, they even cite one worm that's, co- the, that's called uh, Clonorchis sinensis, like the, you know, the, the Chinese uh, um, liver fluke or something like this. Huh. Long story short, they're saying, you know, Western biomedicine and Islamic medicine are both superior to Chinese uh, popular understandings of health. Mm. Um, but because of the way that the political um, environment is changing so rapidly, they... They, their counterparts can't get away with that kind of thing very soon thereafter. So this was in the 1920s? This is in the early 30s. In the early 30s. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back very soon. Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir, and I'm with Shireen Hamza. We're speaking to John Chen about how Muslims in China in the 20th century began to understand medicine, how they understood their place in the world and the connections that brought them there. Uh, And right before this, we were talking about how in the kind of very turbulent early years of the 20th century, 
they started making claims against Chinese medicine, claiming that Islamic medicine and Western medicine were somehow uh, more modern and um, more insightful uh, than that of their counterparts in China. And I guess the question I had when I was listening to you speak about this is a kind of where, where are they getting this new information about Islamic medicine? Where are they deriving this knowledge, especially since they'd been kind of um, disconnected from the larger Islamic world up to that point? Right. Yeah. So that was um, a big part of the impetus for uh, the article um, and looking into Southeast Asian connections, because a big theme um, just in the field of uh, studying Islam in China uh, for a while now has been um, arguing that the 20th century was characterized by Arabization mm-hmm. uh, and by primarily by a rediscovery of, of all, all things Arabic and Middle Eastern. Um, <clears throat> and it's not that that's not the case, but I think looking at Southeast Asia is a, an important way to qualify the ways that it was and wasn't. In the terms that you put it earlier in the interview, people were more focused on the land connections directly between East Asia and the Middle East rather than these maritime connections. Mm. Yeah, that that is really the most basic reason uh, because, you know, when people have talked about Arabization uh, being the dominant uh, trend in this period, they're looking at texts and particularly texts, you know, used in uh, Chinese madrasas. And before the 20th century, uh, a lot of those texts were Persian. I mean, Persian and Turkic were really the, the dominant influences um, in, in pre-modern times in Chinese madrasas. When you get to the 20th century, some of, the, some of these very same imams that I mentioned uh, uh, who were you know, doing these radio broadcasts um, are also the ones who, um, actually with the funding of um, Chinese Muslim pharmacies in, in a lot of cases, wow. are, are traveling to other Muslim regions to collect texts. Uh, and particularly Arabic texts. So this is kind of how it all <laughs> fits together. I mean, they, they want to bring um, a greater amount of Arabic authenticity into their curricula. You know, so that is Arabization, and it also isn't, because the way that you have to travel uh, is once you leave Shanghai or Hong Kong, you have to first go to Singapore. There, there's, I mean, there, there's either one or no direct steamers from Shanghai to Arabia. Um, you had to stop in Singapore. So that's what they do. Uh, there they meet uh, people like, you know, the descendants of the Hadrami diaspora. Uh, and they also spend a lot of time in India uh, and and also the Middle East and Turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though the product of this is Arabic texts, you know, what you see on the back end in, in the Chinese Islamic schools, um, what's actually happening, the way they get them is a much more complex interaction. This connection between Singapore and, for example, Hadrami uh, communities there from the south of Yemen, um, and the groups of Muslims in China who are um, organizing these expeditions, did they also find expressions in the print culture that you were discussing earlier? They did, and it's funny. um, There's actually a really rapid, basically, progress uh, in the Singapore Hadrami's awareness of Chinese Muslims from the early 30s to the late 30s. And uh, it's something I have to look into more because basically in 1932, when one of these imams goes to Singapore and meets with the the patriarch of the Hadramis, he, uh, according to the imam's account, doesn't give them the time of day. Um, But then by the late 30s, you know, or 1940, uh, which we'll, I think we'll get to in a couple of minutes, 
they are i mean that that's where the that's where the title of my article comes from just like old friends that you know they're starting to talk about each other in those terms only eight or so years later mm-hmm. um but what's happening uh just leading up to that is um these missions to al-Azhar in Cairo mm-hmm. um so again yeah so there is an arabic dimension um but it's not everything that's happening and that's kind of what is happening in these like in the 30s in between on these missions to al-azhar is that where where they're acquiring a lot of this arabic material that was in demand in china yeah so this is kind of the the middle phase um uh in terms of chinese muslim interactions with knowledge of islamic medicine so just a quick background i mean starting in 1931 uh the chinese muslims start sending groups of aspiring ulama to cairo to al-azhar uh and this really has to do with this process of of seeking a, a greater sense of of orthodoxy um because it wasn't just enough that they were making contact you know or it wasn't just enough that they were reconciling you know working to reconcile islamic faith with belonging in china there was also a question of well, what kind of islam is uh what understanding of islam is most conducive to that so that is where the azhar missions come in um, because you have all these sheikhs there saying things like, you know, uh, Islam is rational, Islam is, you know, com- fully compatible with modern science, uh, that sort of thing. So, so far what you've described to us is, um, one, these missions to Al-Azhar, these Chinese Muslims reaching out, moving to uh, Egypt and other places, but they're doing so through the mediation of Southeast, Southeast Asia and through these uh, Hadrami diaspora sheikhs. Um but, you know, you've done a wonderful job describing this, but now I want to know kind of what is the impact on Chinese Muslim society itself? What do they bring back? How do they start transforming uh, Islamic practice and thought within China? Yeah, like I was saying, even though even though it's part of this larger system that involves South and Southeast Asia, um, the missions to Al-Azhar were really about the content uh, mm-hmm. and, and the orthodoxizing impulse. So the one example that I have, you know, um, uh, relating to medicine is this one Chinese Azharite who was translating uh, a set of articles by Muhammad Farid Wajdi, who was the editor of Al-Azhar's journal uh, in the 30s. And this was an article about just the history of medicine in Islam. Uh, and Wajdi's argument was that um, he said, you know, all peoples, uh, all civilizations, um, that was their that was their category, all civilizations throughout history have added, he said, a certain amount of superstition to um, medical practice. They, they've, uh, you know, incorporated spiritualism and magic and these, these things that are, right, not actually uh, rational. And this comes from Wedgie's perspective, this comes from the Islam, the general Islamic modernist militancy against Sufism and superstition and um, anything that sounds like that. When his Chinese Azharite translator translated that um, into this um, Chinese Muslim journal, uh, the preeminent Chinese Muslim journal called called Yuehua, uh, published in Beijing, he translates uh, the Arabic word, um, which Wedgdi said, al-khurafiya, for, for superstition. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, his Translator translated as mishin, which um, also uh, now means superstition in Chinese. But the register of that has uh, a context from 
uh, from Chinese politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what that is, is at this very same time, the Guomindang was um, actively suppressing um, temple practices throughout China that it considered superstitious. And in contrast to that, elevating practices that they thought counted as rational uh, religion uh, in contrast to irrational superstition. Um, so these categories are becoming uh, increasingly shared, uh, actually between the two regions, uh, mm. the Middle East and China, and between the two languages, um, Arabic and Chinese. So there's a, there are these Azharites and other Muslim leaders within China who are synchronizing some of the broader materials that they have found in their travels in the Islamic world and specifically um, Arabic language materials from the Middle East with the Chinese National Project in the early Republican era. So um, you mentioned the journal Yuehua. Um, What else did this journal do to build uh, these impulses into the sort of culture of Islam in China? Yeah, so Yuehua is the primary forum where these dynamics are playing out. So <clears throat> so really, after you have translations like the ones by the Chinese Asarites, really the last piece of the puzzle um, from the Chinese Muslims' perspective is to answer the question, how does this relate to China and Chinese medicine? So crafting a, a metaphor for belonging uh, mm-hmm. out of it. Because by that time, uh, just you know, a little quick context. I mean, China, the Guomindang has become more culturally conservative. Uh, there's been a contest between um, Western medical practitioners or Western style uh, Chinese medical practitioners versus native uh, style medical practitioners. Um, and so basically this emphasis on national culture in China has, has grown uh, from the early to the late 30s. Um, and Muslim scholars are starting to uh, I mean, definitely notice this and, and respond to it um, in the way they look at medicine. This other, this last example that um, I'm thinking of is uh, a Chinese Muslim scholar called Bai Shoui, and he is um, he is actually quite important. Generally, uh, in the PRC era, he becomes actually one of the, one of the foremost historians in China of Chinese history as a whole, and um, survives the Cultural Revolution better than many of his counterparts, mm-hmm. uh, Muslim and non-Muslim, mm-hmm. um, for the way he's able to um, navigate very skillfully uh, basically the, the politics of, of temporality and the, you know, the politics of periodization and um, the way he crafts uh, metaphors out of apparently totally factual <laughs> um, history. So... Uh, that's who he becomes, but that's also already who he is uh, as a 20-something-year-old in the 1930s. Um, so in Yuehua, this, this Chinese Muslim journal, he publishes an article in 1937 uh, when all these political dynamics are really reaching their peak and when the, right, actually right before the war uh, with Japan breaks out. Publishes an article uh, called The Song Era, The Song Dynasty Era, Muslim Trade in Materia Medica. So this article is fascinating. Again, it's, you know, on superficially, it's just about these materials. Again, like we mentioned, like nutmeg, costas, myrrh, mm-hmm. <laughs> frankincense. And the way it relates to also the geographical dynamics we've been talking about is most of the materials uh, that he's talking about in this article, uh, in this essay, 
are things that come from Southeast Asia. And he's, he's pointing that out. Um, uh, he's saying, you know, for, for example, uh, when he, um, he talks about benzoin, he says, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, and his, his approach is philological, right? So he says, uh, you know, the Arabic word for benzoin is lubanjawi, but, you know, even though, you know, it comes from the Arabic word, the, the meaning is, you know, incense from Java. <laughs> so therefore, you know, this, this, you know, etymological background tells us that it wasn't just Arabia that was important. It was also Southeast Asia. Right. So that's what his evidence is showing. But at the same time, this is where Arabization comes back in. This is also where the pressure to show belonging in China comes back in. So he's, he's basically narrativizing all this in a very politically skillful and met metaphorically skillful way. So he says uh, basically that, you know, um, which, which is what Chinese Muslims end up saying in, uh, in the late 20th century, uh, is that Islamic medicine has Arabian origins, Arabic origins, and then over the centuries it's Sinicized and becomes Chinese Muslim medicine. And then we don't hear anything else about what happened in the middle. <clears throat> and this is actually the official position of institutions of Chinese Muslim medicine in China today. Mm -hmm. um, so, but it comes from this. Do historians today know what might be left out in this very sort of origin, Arabian origins and Chinese ends kind of narrative that uh, Bai Shuyi is crafting? Yeah, so I mean, that's... Um, it's basically exactly where we started. You know, I mentioned the um, importance of the Mongol era uh, to knowledge exchange between um, the Islamic and Chinese realms. Um, so one uh, really important text uh, that is today regarded as the most important uh, text in the history of Chinese Islamic medicine is called the Hui Hui Yaofang, uh, or the Muslim Pharmacopoeia, mm -hmm. uh, which is a text that comes out of the Mongol era. Um, it's translated uh, in the late Mongol era, early Ming era. Um, again, that formative, that formative moment. Translated from Arabic and Persian and Turkic texts into Chinese. Uh, and a lot of these same material, nutmeg, costas, all these things show up uh, there too. Um, and this thing has now been canonized. And it was actually discovered in the library in Beijing by one of Bai Shoyi's contemporary Han oh. scholars at this exact moment in time in the mid or late 20s. So it wasn't being used in practice before. It uh, yeah, so the background of it is um, is basically is is kind of obscure. Um, but the thought is it it was used, you know, during mm -hmm. the Mongol or you know, during the Mongol and early Ming times. But Bai Shuyi doesn't say anything about it in his essay. Hmm. Um, so the question is why? Uh, and I think it's because he's, he is trying to craft this smooth narrative of sinicization of Islamic medicine. Mm. From, yeah, ex exactly as we were saying, from Arabic origins to becoming Chinese. And that's, that's the, the basically political metaphor um, for what's happening with Chinese Muslims generally. The text that he does talk about is the guy from Sichuan. <laughs> um, and he doesn't mention... You know, or doesn't emphasize that he was Persian. What he emphasizes is, you know, he he came to China very early, um, right. before the Mongols, before this non-Han dynasty. Um, this is the ninth century guy. This is the ninth century about. guy. Yeah, mm -hmm. and 
he took a Chinese name, he could write in Chinese um, already in the ninth century. Uh, so it's like saying, and, and his knowledge contributed uh, to Chinese civilization, you know, Han dominated Chinese civilization, by the way, um, at a very early point. Right. So you can see the political metaphor that's, uh, that bias is going toward there. Mm -hmm. Unlike um, this narrative, a lot of Chinese Muslims uh, envisioned the connection between China and Southeast Asia as very formative in the Islamic world. And you give a number of examples in your article, but could you give us one example of someone who acted on that history? Uh, basically, at the same exact moment in the late 30s, when the war with Japan is starting, uh, this narrative about civilizational exchange and exchange of medical knowledge uh, between China and Islam that, <clears throat> that Bai Shoi has been writing about uh, actually becomes activated in um, in the process of the war. Uh, so the Guomindang government sends uh, these groups of Chinese Muslims as diplomats to the Middle East and India and Southeast Asia. And they do two things. They use this narrative of you know, the long-standing civilizational exchange in order to appeal to some of these, you know, neutral uh, uh, countries um, mm -hmm. to try to help them understand why China's fighting against Japan and try to help them to get them on China's side. And then connected to that, they're also asking them for, guess what, medical supplies. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, to be donated to the Chinese military. Uh, mm -hmm. And I've seen sources that... Well, it's a little frustrating. I've seen one source that said they collected 800,000 yuan worth of medical supplies. One source that said $800,000. <laughs> wow. Um, in any case, it was a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. They get a lot. Um, and, you know, at this moment especially, and they're, they're, they're doing this and they're talking, They're you know, all the while they're talking about oh, Ibn Sina and, you know, the canon. And, you know, this was, you know, uh, this influenced Chinese medicine, this contributed to Chinese civilization. We have this long history, and therefore you should contribute medical materials for right. our war effort. Like old friends. <laughs> Just like old friends. Right. So on that note, I think we've had a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Thank John. Thank you, guys. Yeah, I think we've learned a lot about how Chinese Muslims um, began to understand their own um, medical traditions and how they cast it against um, those of Chinese uh, medical traditions and the kind of interconnections with Southeast Asia uh, and the transformations of the image of their own community. So thank you, John, for this wonderful. Listeners who are interested in learning more about this topic can go to our website where John has provided us with a few titles uh, on this topic for those who'd like to learn more. Until next time. <laughs>